Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. So much of what we focus on as MetaSLPs is the what, like what to evaluate, what certain diagnoses mean, what to recommend, and what not to recommend. But what about the how? Like how do we treat what we see or what we can't can't see? How do we help our patients? How do we leave the kind of impact that results in goals met and a few extra seats at the table? So it's exactly what we're dedicating this weekend's free MetaSLP Summit to. You're invited to join us for up to 14 hours of free education on therapy approaches peds and adults MetaSLPs are using today and how they do it. Saturday, December 2nd is dedicated to the adult population and Sunday, December 3rd is all things peds. The MetaSLP Summit is seriously one of my favorite events, not just because it's free education that MetaSLPs can apply at work, but because of the wonderful group of brilliant and kind humans who make it all possible. So yes, the summit is completely recorded. If you aren't available this weekend, you can still catch it on your own time. But I want you to get to know some of these incredible SLPs who will be presenting this weekend. So today's episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast is going to be a little bit different. So instead of interviewing someone new, I'm going to bring back some prior episodes that feature some of our presenters. You'll quickly learn why the MetaSLP community loves them so much. Today, I'm going to play five clips from five... Today, I'm going to play some clips from five of our speakers who will be presenting on adult med SLP therapy approaches. You'll get to know Yvette McCoy, Stephanie Watts, Isabel Lawton, Kelly Salmon, and Jessica Greger. If you haven't already, make sure to register for the free med SLP summit for up to 14 hours of free education at www.medslpcollective.com forward slash summit. And if you can't make it live, don't worry, there will be the recording to catch the replay. So that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash summit. And as for now, enjoy getting to know some of our fabulous presenters for day one of the summit. Well, I'm Yvette McCoy. I have a private practice um, in Southern Maryland, down in Leonardtown, Maryland. And I am adjunct instructor at the University of Maryland. I teach the dysphagia course there in the advanced dysphagia seminar um, at the university in College Park. So that takes about most of my time. I'm a mom of three and I've got two fur babies and I'm busy all the time. Yes. Yes. And what you said was you also teach the advanced dysphagia seminar. What did I say? Yeah. 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 No, I'm just saying that's the coolest thing ever. I know <laughs> there's so many, I just learned that a recent program here in my area just decreased their dysphagia course to only three weeks. So that's all these people get. Yeah. Yeah. No, that doesn't surprise me at all. It's a fight to yeah. Yeah. kind of change the culture as it relates to dysphagia education. But I think, you know, we have a responsibility to really, you know, we talk about advocating for our for our patients, we really have to advocate for ourselves too, somewhat within our own profession. And, you know, it's just not enough to have a dysphagia course for three credits or two credits and expect these kids to go out and learn and go out and work and know what they're supposed to know. It's, it's not realistic. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that not only you have an intro course, but you also have an advanced course. So yeah. I love, love, love hearing that. Thank you. All right. So where should we start today, Miss Yvette? Well, you know, if you want to talk about the aging swallow, I do, you know, I enjoy talking about the aging swallow quite often because I think that, you know, so often we see old age as a disease and really it's not. And so, you know, we most 
of our clinicians are working in skilled nursing facilities. Most of the clinicians that treat dysphagia are working in skilled nursing facilities. So, so they're seeing the elderly population for the majority of their day. And so I think it's important for us as clinicians to be able to really identify between presbyphagia, which is a normal, healthy, elderly swallow, and dysphagia, and when presbyphagia kind of crosses into dysphagia. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's kind of dive into some of the specifics of what, you know, what are some of the characteristics of presbyphagia? You know, the elderly present with a lot of complex medical issues, and sometimes that insidious onset of dysphagia can be overshadowed by more overt medical issues. And sometimes when older people start to experience swallow difficulty, they they might associate it with the natural aging process. But really, there are very, very distinct characteristics that can be associated with the elderly swallow. And, you know, I think just knowing those and being mindful of those can really help clinicians identify when it's just presbyphagia as opposed to when it's crossing the bridge over into dysphagia. Before we go into the specific characteristics that, you know, might be prevalent for patients with presbyphagia, I really want to talk about this notion of functional reserve because you know, traditional thinking suggests that causes of dysphagia are always disease-related, and, and that may not always be the case. More recent research has suggested that swallowing changes can occur even with healthy aging, and this research is particularly relevant when an older or healthy adult whose functional reserve or their ability to adapt to stress. And that's really what functional reserve means. It's, a, it's the ability to adapt to any sort of um, stressors. And traditional thinking suggests that causes of dysphagia are always disease-related. And that may not always be the case. There's been a lot of research recently that suggests that swallowing changes do occur even with healthy aging. And so I think this research is particularly relevant when an older, healthy adult whose functional reserve or their ability to adapt to stress becomes naturally diminished with age. And so as these elderly are faced with increased stressors, such as system nervous system altering medications, which we as clinicians don't really know a lot about. Um, we're not very well versed on how drugs can impact dysphagia and medications. Also mechanical disruptions such as an MG tube or trachs, even chronic medical conditions that might not necessarily elicit dysphagia in a less vulnerable individual so in our practice, we really should know this information because it'll help us in providing safeguards against overdiagnosis and overtreatment of dysphagia in the elderly population. Well, and, I, and I'll add, you know, I think you have such a good point about the overdiagnosis of dysphagia. And I was talking with a student earlier today because I think a lot of times that's, I feel like a lot of days yeah. that's all that I'm doing is finding patients that have been overdiagnosed with dysphagia and they really just have yeah. something else going on. And, you know, so I was talking with a student earlier today because I've just had so many patients lately that, you know, they just had a cough and so they were put on thickened liquids or just these really, you know, some they're not getting their cinnamon if they're a Parkinson's patient, things that really are not, you know, they are within our scope of practice, but other people should be aware of them also. And now all of a sudden these patients are put on restricted diets and they're dumped in our laps. And before you know it, we're doing exercises with them and wasting yeah. lots of healthcare dollars. Yeah. So I think that's why this episode is so important because I want people to realize there's so many other things that go into it. Yeah, there are. And again, there are, there are so many different types of medications that can just cause cough. And when we think about the number of medications that our elderly patients are on, I mean, we, we kind of have to 
be a little bit of a sleuth and we have to look at the medical chart and we have to put all this information together. We have to talk to the nursing staff. You know, we have to, we have to look at the medications that they're on and how often they're receiving them and when was the last dosage given and what's the half-life of that. And I don't think that we consider that as much as we should. And that makes a huge, huge difference. I had a patient recently um, that was sent to me because she was having trouble swallowing and she was an elderly person and she had so she was just coughing and sputtering and coughing and coughing and coughing and you know I started to notice that it wasn't just happening when we were giving her something to eat or drink over you know the course of a couple sessions and I started to really investigate and look and see what medication she was taking and and we found out uh between myself and the her attending physician and her psychiatrist that it was some of those psych meds that were really causing some significant side effects. You know, not only the cough, but a few other side effects that were very concerning. And at that point, you know, we had to decide, do do the risk outweigh the benefits? Can she stay on this medication and still have these dysphagia-like symptoms and we decided that she had to, you know, working as a team, the physicians decided, and I obviously was in agreement that, you know, she needed to stay on the medications that we were on. And so we used compensatory strategies. And a lot of times, you know, we talk about compensating versus rehabilitation, but this is an example of where compensatory strategies may be good because the person wasn't able to come off of her medication. So we had to figure out a way for her to be able to swallow safely. That's exactly what I was telling the student this morning. You know, she's like, oh, so the answer is that we just tell the doctor to take them off their meds. And I was like, no, 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 it's never really that simple or cut and dry. It's just a lot of times bringing this information to the doctor's attention that, you know, hey, did you know that this, these psych meds or this Ativan is causing, you know, has an impact on this dysphagia and perhaps we need to change the timing or is there anything that can be done? Exactly. So I think we need more attention to medications and how they can impact or, you know, at least mimic symptoms of dysphagia. And sometimes, you know, like I said, with some of these central nervous system altering medications, the patients develop a full-on dysphagia. They really have difficulty swallowing. I'm Jessica Greger. I'm a medical speech pathologist. I'm currently employed at Mayo Clinic, and I have the pleasure of working with an awesome laryngologist, Dr. Will Carley, and an awesome esophagologist, Dr. Alon Khan, who are joining me here. We are talking about uh, multidisciplinary collaboration for swallowing and swallowing problems, swallowing impairments. So for all different types of dysphagia, different swallowing complaints, how it's best practice really to try and have a a team discussing it and even ideal setting of having everybody in one place, uh, an integrated diagnostic uh, encounter, if you will, in one day with a whole plan of care made because of great collaboration with the team members. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Um, You want to get a little background about who you are, Jess? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. So I'm from Chicagoland and I went to U of I in Urbana-Champaign for my undergrad speech and hearing science and then went on to Rush and wanted to do a medical speech pathology graduate program. And I'm so glad I did. It was great. Through that experience, I had a lot of medical externships and I love the VA. So I got in there for my fellowship down in Florida and worked there for several years. And then also moved down further Florida, went to uh, Cleveland Clinic there, worked there in, in, in the Cleveland Clinic system in South Florida, and then most recently have moved to Arizona, and I'm in the Mayo Clinic system here. And I would say that almost I've been working for almost 15 years, and the oncology population certainly has my heart. I love head and neck cancer. I have started and also participated in several multidisciplinary head and neck cancer programs, like preventative programs and following them and like surveillance care pathways. They already have something like that established here and it's fantastic. And so we are, uh, I, I currently fully integrated in that, but also get the pleasure of seeing different swallowing problems that are largely like reflux based or GI issues 
rheumatologic problems, uh, autoimmune conditions, and pulmonary diseases. Uh, we kind of have a unique system here at Mayo where speech pathology is separated into two groups, otolaryngology and neurology. And so all the neuro-based problems really and inpatient are with that group, whereas we see more of the cancer and the other population. I think just starting off with, okay, we clearly know I'm a swallow nerd, right? Okay. And I, I have a huge passion for dysphagia, all things swallowing. I want to just briefly touch on kind of what has inspired me to start a multidisciplinary board and clinic here at Mayo Clinic. Um, I think really, I mean, you, you always talk about being on dysphagia Island when you're describing so many speech pathologists who are in the medical field and they're, they're doing it all by themselves. And, you know, with depending on the facility or the location, they are not fortunate enough to have, you know, an OT, or, I'm sorry, an ENT or a GI doctor on site with them, collaborative, um, or even in the same city. And that's really tough. But there are a couple cases that really stuck with me where I was sitting there going, okay, this would just be so much better care if I literally had my ENT and GI in this room with me and just taking care of this patient. But it, it, a lot of times people think that a multidisciplinary dysphagia clinic is meant for just complex cases. And it's not. It's, I'm going to give two examples. So it can be from as simple as a patient who ultimately, based on all the workup that's done, a cricopharyngeal prominence or bar that's really obstructive and bothering the patient. They're sensate to it and it's not allowing the food and liquid to pass through, right? It's not that easy just to be like, okay, yeah, like we're going to do something about it. Really, you should never touch the PES until you know what the status is of the esophageal clearance, so motility and their GERD status. And so involving GI is really important. So that's a simple case right there of just figuring that out, talking about it and figuring out the best plan if that's the right move for the patient. And then something more complex, like I had a patient who was six months out from a base of skull resection. His entire right vagal nerve was just out on the whole right side. So if you can imagine, you know, soft palates out on that side, pharynx, vocal cord out on that side, UES dysfunction, mm, insane dysmotility, and then LES dysfunction. And, you know, they're presenting in my office after I've done a fluoro study, like, what's what's the deal? And, you know, having them, I know what they're in for. They're in for months of waiting to see a GI, waiting to see an ENT, probably not at the same time. So one staggered after the other. And they're going to get told very specific things from their lane. And no one's talking. I'm not able to then, like, catch up and talk with these people. And they may be in network or they might be within my facility or my system, or they may not be. And uh, that patient, what would they benefit from? Gosh, I mean, sure, I know what I can get started for, for behavioral swallow intervention, but I really would want to know, what does the ENT think about pharyngopasty for the palate, laryngoplasty, like medialization for the vocal cord? What is my, what does he think about the cricopharyngeal muscle dysfunction? What does the GI think about his motility status and the LES and UES dysfunction? Cause they're so closely related. We just need a whole big discussion in one room after we've done some nice workup and we can kind of sort that out from there and save the patient a ton of time and frustration. Yes. So was this, was this just an idea that you thought of? Have you, have you been a part of other models? I guess tell me how this all transpired. Sure. Very good question. This is not a new concept and I am not in any way, shape or form wanting to take credit for anything other than I'm just excited I started something here. But this was something I sought mentorship on years ago. It actually started, started with Tom France. I'm going to totally do terrible with his name, but it's Francisini, Tom Francisini. And he was somewhere in the Midwest and he had started a series of swallowing and reflux clinics with his GI doctor and his ENT. And I thought that was fascinating because I've always been fascinated by GERD and reflux. And so I picked his brain a little bit, but then he had, you know, given me some other pathways to follow in terms of um, mentorship. And I came upon Heather Starmer, one of the greatest speech pathologists clinically. She's just fantastic. And she's at uh, Stanford. And so um, she works with the GI and ENT, and they've been doing it for a couple of years now. And she's published a nice paper on it, which is one of my game-changing papers that you asked about for this podcast. And uh, yeah, so we've 
We've interviewed actually the GI, Dr. Clark, from that group on our multidisciplinary dysphagia board. And just to pick his brain and learn more. And Heather's been, you know, integral for uh, mentorship in that arena. So, yeah, it's not a new concept. I also added a paper that I wanted the listeners to take a look at. It's from the Journal of Dysphagia, I believe 1989. It's got Jerry Logeman on it. It also has, and I just want to make sure I got it, they've got ENT, GI, neuropsych, and rehab medicine on there, along with uh, Bronwyn Jones, the radiologist. And they all get a case to look at, and it's a lot of still fluoros, and then they discuss. And it's truly the same conversations Just 30 years that we're, we still have 30-some years later, and multidisciplinary care is still not happening. And it's not, it, I mean, we know that in medicine, team care is really where it's going, and it shouldn't be no different for swallowing. I mean, we know how complex swallow is. The team should be just as complex. We need the collaboration of the specialists. So tell me how you landed with this dream team. Were you just like, hey, do you want to be on my team? How did this all transpire? So uh, when I got hired, the, the team knew uh, Dr. Carly was part of the team, the laryngology team that did hire me. And he knew of my uh, desire to move forward with that. So we put together a meeting with we actually have esophagologists here. We have a whole group of esophagologists. They even have a fellowship for um, training in esophagology. And so I met with Dr. Vila, Dr. Khan, and a few others from that group. And they were like, I mean, I don't want to speak for Dr. Khan. I'll let him tell you. But he was like, yes, this is what we should be doing for every dysphagic patient. So actually, I would like, uh, Al, would please share your thoughts on that and then Will, too. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I love the way you describe this. I think we've all on our own had this experience. Uh, and I like to explain to my fellows, uh, and, and I've certainly experienced this, that, you know, patients don't understand who knows what, right? And so I like to explain to patients and, of course, to my trainees that the speech pathologists are really the experts in the swallow mechanism, especially in this region. And they, they presume that we know everything, that we are trained in the entire continuum of swallowing, but that just isn't the case, right? And so I've always really valued that collaboration. When I was in training, I, I sought out opportunities to spend time with speech pathologists uh, here and also in Rochester when I spent time up there at the Mayo Clinic uh, and saw that multidisciplinary collaboration happening. And I think that was always modeled for me. So for me, it was always really important. Um, but I think you came in with the enthusiasm for this particular initiative uh, and that's sometimes what you need. You just need the right ingredients and the people to to set it off. Good morning, Dr. Watts. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you on. You're so welcome. I'm happy to be here and talk about one of my favorite subjects. Yay, awesome. So if people don't know who you are, tell them a tiny bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a speech language pathologist and a clinician scientist at the University of South Florida. I'm a professor at USF Health Voice Center and chief of speech there in otolaryngology head and neck surgery. My research interests include multi-phase or multi-process dysphagia and in the evaluation and inclusion of esophageal dysphagia in our assessments. Awesome. All right. So much to talk about today. <laughs> Let me just start with how, where did this passion for this topic stem from? I think I always love to, to hear researchers talk about that. Sure. My mentor you know, has been my fellowship mentor and colleague has always been an advocate for esophageal dysphagia in the work. During the course of my training, I really had an interest of my own formalizing and validating and being a proponent for the accessibility of caring for patients with dysphagia. I myself have esophageal dysphagia, actually. So yeah, uh, my last dilation was last year and I'm due for another. Uh, and so the, the interesting part is when you, you know, actually suffer from difficulty eating and, you know, have concurrent problems in the throat, uh, you know, you have a passion to help others and to help them uh, identify where the problem is and get it solved with a, a group of people who know what they're doing. Yeah. Was it the chicken or the egg? Did you have esophageal dysphagia before you wanted to investigate it or did you have it and then you and then you had it? So my first operation was when I was 11. Certainly didn't know much about any of this, actually. Okay. And yeah. then, you know, the more I learned, the more I became kind of passionate about disseminating information and, and certainly as a scientist, understanding the pathophysiology. 
Yeah, awesome. All right. So so where should we start with this topic? I guess there's there's so much to start with. Well, you know, the original protocol was published in 2019. So it's been a couple of years and then subsequently validated with a group of participants uh, retrospectively. And since its conception, formalization, standardization, I have had the privilege of meeting so many SLPs across the country and the world who are interested in this and say, hey, I face this dilemma at work all the time, you know, that I want to look further. I know that the swallow does not end at the upper esophageal sphincter, but we arbitrarily dichotomize these things, oropharynx and esophagus. And so my passion has grown not only to understanding the physiology, not only understanding concurrent and construct validity of the assessments, but also how we can disseminate how we can make it usable to clinicians who are in the field working hard every day to serve their patients. And so I teamed with a very bright and eager clinician scientist, Jessica Greger, over at Mayo, and formally taught, came up with like a three-hour protocol to teach and formally taught a small group of SLPs the rest. I went into kind of deep into esophageal dysphagia and relationship between the two and why you might need to investigate further, then went into the rest, then provided many examples and did kind of a inter-rater reliability testing. And so when they met a certain kappa threshold reliability, then they instituted this at their institution through quality improvement program. And over the course of several months instituting the rest formally at their institution, we decided to publish it. So you'll see that in um, AJSLP in the next month or so. And it's kind of a how-to guide. And that's just the beginning too, because there's so many questions about now, what do we do? What are the algorithms of care when you find a screen fail? Who do you refer to? What are the limits of our capability as a speech pathologist or a medically trained speech pathologist? Do we know enough to feel comfortable? And so it's grown into this really wonderful programmatic line of research that I'm happy to be carrying out continuously currently. And also recently trained an amazing group of clinician scientists at Tampa General Hospital, all in acute care. So kind of took that model of systematic training, even though their knowledge expanded into obviously esophageal dysphagia, but just so that we were confident that everyone had the same access to training and they too met an 80% and higher kappa for these reliability intra and inter-reader reliability and have been implementing this program in the acute care. So what does it look like in the outpatient setting? What does this look like in the acute care setting outside of a, you know, really academic focused swallow center where you have, you know, autonomy and all sorts of other things. And so real life data coming in. And then from there as well, we have a new IRB protocol going in, looking at something I'm happy to announce as the MREST, or what is the concurrent validity of a modified version? So if you have a patient with oral pharyngeal dysphagia and you cannot fully complete all the bolus challenges included in the rest, what does that look like? You know, is this still a valid measure? And so that will be at your doorstep soon too. Amazing. So a boring summer for you, Dr. Watts. Love to hear it. Not a boring <laughs> summer. No, <laughs> never is. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this stuff is so exciting. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Let's back up a tiny bit only because I think what's so, so fascinating about this is like, this is literally your entire you know, scope of what you study. But for some speech pathologists, we've only learned a tiny, tiny, tiny bit about esophageal dysphagia, or maybe took one, you know, two hour webinar about it. And that's the extent of it, right? So if you can back up just a tiny bit and explain maybe what the rest is for listeners that might not know what that is. You touch on a, a good point there is the how we're not systematically trained as a group of providers in an area that our governing body says that it is within our scope. You know, it's within our scope to take a look. We know that these processes are intimately related at a neuro and physiologic level. And so when we provide, you know, that background and say, hey, you can go out there and take a look, but we're not systematically training our providers, there becomes this split in the field of should we look, should we have more training? And then that's the survey that kind of came out recently was how to elucidate how dichotomized we even are in our own profession of should we look, do we need more training? 
And so the rest was really provided as an addition. So four bolus challenges as an addition to the modified barium swallow study with really concise operational definitions for a pass fail. And so the clinician will follow a solid bolus, just completing their oropharyngeal assessment all the way through to the stomach, making sure it made it to its destination. They'll follow a thicker liquid, so a 70 weight to volume easy pick liquid from the mouth through the esophagus. The x-ray tech will remain at the lower sphincter and follow a bolus there. And then finally, the tablet that we typically give, the 12.7 millimeter tablet will be followed from the mouth all the way through the esophagus. And based on a set of operational definitions, the clinician will say, was there something like to and fro movement, bolus hang up for greater than a minute? So there's a temporal aspect. Or was there some sort of variation in anatomic configuration from a straight pipe? And based on that, in the preliminary data, we found that clinicians are quite accurate in describing abnormality as compared to our physician raters. Awesome. Cool. What, what does the rest stand for? The robust esophageal screening test. All right. The word robust is a funny one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I've been using it a lot lately, so I love to hear it. I don't know. I don't know why. Robust. Well, yeah. you know, it is. It's just more robust than yeah, one, than one. You know, <laughs> one view or just following down to the aortic arc. You know, it's not too robust, but just robust enough, in my opinion. And we find such value. In that, those extra views, especially the one where you remain at the LES, I call it the money shot, because when you have full distension of the lower esophageal sphincter, you can bring out kind of aberrant shapes of the straight esophageal contour and then discuss uh, further. Interesting. Yes. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I think it's important to note that the rest is a screening protocol. You know, it is not the definitive factor in determining etiology. It is merely to accompany the modified barium swallow study, make sure your bolus got to the destination it was supposed to go to. And also because when a patient comes to you or a physician comes to you with the question of why is this person having trouble swallowing, in my opinion, we should look at the whole process because of certainly the esophagus has influence on the pharynx and the pharynx influence on the esophagus. Got a few questions for you. So is this something that you would do with every single patient, every single, every single time you do a modified barium swallow? Indeed, the nature of it is screening when you have a referral for as an outpatient, when you have a referral for a swallowing problem and someone comes to you and they have a list of complaints and problems, we don't typically know exactly what they might be referring to, right? There could be a variety of complaints and there's no clear etiology of what questions pertain to what, which is also one of our <laughs> investigative aims. We have a lot of fun things coming out. I just had this question presented to me. And so I say that if limited to patient questioning, a globus with eating is a nice indicator in terms of pain and sensations. Some individuals with prolonged distension, pharmacologic etiology of dysphagia and disease are often not sensate to the pain that distal hangup can cause. And taking a look as a screening protocol will help assure that you and your team, your physician and multidisciplinary team will have information to proceed. So um, as I mentioned, you know, over the years, I have found my niche kind of working with patients diagnosed with head and neck cancer. And that includes everything from the, the day of diagnosis and formulation of their treatment plan through all of the stages of survivorship, including end of life. So um, it's been a really amazing experience and an amazing journey for me to work with these individuals. I just have so many memorable patients and people that have taught me so much just about, you know, perseverance and, and working through incredibly difficult diagnoses and situations. And this patient population, it is challenging. It's not easy. But to me, the best part of working with the, this patient population is that it does force you to think a lot about um, anatomy. Uh, it makes you think a lot about physiology, you know, how treatments affect speech and swallowing and overall quality of life. And so although you may get a couple patients that all had their cancer in the same location, all three of them may have different treatment plans. And those treatment plans may impact the severity of their impairments afterwards. So 
for me, every single patient is a puzzle <laughs> and they can be tough puzzles to, you know, pick apart, you know, what, what's going on here is, is this problem with swallowing an anatomic issue that, you know, they had a surgical resection and they just don't have the same muscle bulk and same configuration of the oral cavity or their pharynx as they did before. Have they been treated with chemo or radiation and, and now have a lack of saliva that's really contributing to their swallow problem? Or on the other hand, was their treatment, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, and now they're experiencing, you know, some of the unfortunate later effects of their, of their treatment. So, so it really makes you think critically. There's a lot of problem solving and a lot, a lot of interdisciplinary teamwork to manage these patients. So, so it's a tough patient population, but it's challenging. And, and I found that it's absolutely rewarding to work with them. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it's growing too. So, mm -hmm. and um, I think, you know, over the years, I found that there's not one right approach to treating these patients, you know, a lot depends on each individual side effects. So there are patients that I know are going to do great after treatment. We are able to work them through, you know, an exercise-based protocol or a bolus-driven protocol, and they return to a full oral diet. Their peg tube is gone, and I never see them again. They're doing awesome. And then on the flip side, I have patients who, you know, again, had their treatment many years ago, and by the time they come to me, the uh, later effects have really set in. They've got a lot of stiffness and fibrosis and pretty deep down changes in terms of their muscle function and physiology. And unfortunately, I've had patients where, you know, despite all of the tools in my toolbox, I, I'm not able to really make a, a lasting change on their swallow function. You know, and this has been well documented in the literature, you know, these later uh, radi late, late radiation associated dysphagia. And unfortunately, you know, in the review of all of the different treatment techniques in terms of exercise protocols and electrical stimulation and manual therapy and, and everything else, that despite all of that, you know, we don't see huge changes in function. What we do see is that patients, you know, report better quality of life after undergoing some of these treatments. But when we do instrumental exams, the physiology doesn't really match, right? So they feel like they're doing better. But unfortunately, all of the treatment that we've attempted hasn't really made any, any changes to the underlying musculature, which is tough. <laughs> and, and, you know, one interesting patient population that I've seen um, kind of increase over the past, probably five years for sure, but probably the last five to 10 years is you know, a lot of these patients who underwent organ preserving treatments, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, primary radiation and chemotherapy, that they've had such significant side effects, later side effects, that they end up with kind of a, a whole different condition in and of itself known as dysfunctional larynx. So these are patients who essentially that I mean, some of the ENTs I work with, they'll kind of phrase it as they're like a swallowing cripple. They're, they're not able to swallow it all, or at least swallow safely. You know, these are the patients that are having recurrent pneumonias, despite trying therapies or modifying their diet. And some of them, you know, the, the extent of the fibrosis affects the in, entirety of the larynx, where they start to have issues with breathing and voicing. And so, these patients, I've seen quite a few that have opted to proceed with a uh, salvage uh, total laryngectomy. So they don't have any type of recurrence of their cancer, but their swallow function, their laryngeal function has been so devastated over the years with the progressive changes from their treatment that, you know, they may not have any good voice function, they may be experiencing trouble breathing, and they can't eat because they're aspirating so significantly that they have recurrent pneumonias. So seeing quite a few of those patients that have moved in that direction of, of having a functional laryngectomy to solve those issues. So that's another really interesting yeah. patient population to work with. And 
for a lot of patients, you know, if it comes down to that question of, you know, well, would you rather be able to speak or would you rather be able to eat? Um, and hands down, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll say, you know, I can deal with not speaking. I, I want to eat. Um, and these patients that have gone through with this surgery, you know, a lot of them I've known for years because they've been struggling for years in terms of their eating and their swallowing, and it's just progressively getting worse, but they're holding on to any chance they can get to eat. So they're dealing with these pneumonias, but they don't want to give up eating. And so they do end up having this surgery. And I'll ask them, I'll say, you know, do you feel like you made the right decision? Or would you do it again? And hands down, they'll say, yeah, you know, I wish I did it sooner because I can breathe easier. You know, I can eat and drink. You know, it's not normal, right? You know, we always talk about that too, that, you know, swallowing doesn't automatically become easy just because you had a, a laryngectomy. There are still, you know, swallow issues that happen. But hands down, you know, they can breathe easier, they can eat and drink. And now, you know, there's many options for restoring communicative function after laryngectomy as well. So for a lot of these patients um, that have gone that route, they've found a huge improvement in their quality of life. But forgive me for being naive, Kelly, because this is like laryngectomy is not my jam at all. But like, is it is it almost more common for laryngectomies to be elective? Or is it, I just don't, you know, like I am fascinated that it's actually something that people would just choose to do as opposed to the physician being like, this is what we have to do for you. Right, right. So it's, I would call it more elective in these particular cases where someone's function has declined to the point where, again, they can't, they can't safely eat or drink. They're, you know, getting these recurrent pneumonias, you know, they're in the hospital once a month or every two months because they're having these recurrent pneumonias. It's starting to do harm to their lungs. Um, You know, it's affecting their breathing and, and respiratory function. So it comes to be kind of a crossroads where, listen, Either you continue what you're doing and it'll likely be the end for you at some point, or, you know, we have this option of, you know, removing the voice box, separating the airway from the, from the pharynx, giving you an opportunity to get back to eating and drinking again. So in those cases for a functional laryngectomy, someone who has the, you know, a significant impact with these late effects of radiation, then, then it becomes or it may become an option for some of them at some point in time. But the key here is that these people don't have cancer, right? So they don't have any kind of recurrence saying that you have to have a a laryngectomy in order to, you know, get, get you clear of this, this cancer. But for individuals, you know, diagnosed with later stage laryngeal or hypopharyngeal cancers, then it, it, you know, it may not, it may be less of an option. It's not, not so much elective. If you have significant cancer of the the larynx, then the option is often for total laryngectomy to manage that particular disease process. So in those cases, it's less elective. It's more like this, this is what we have to do if if you want to have a good chance at survival. Yeah. Well, thank you. All right. What's next with laryngectomies? So, you know, I get a lot of questions about managing patients who've had a total laryngectomy, because, you know, a lot of times, it's not something that you see often, unless you, you know, work in a large academic medical center where they're doing a lot of laryngectomy surgery. So if you're working in a rural setting, or you're, you're not close to one of these institutions, you may only see a total laryngectomy once or twice a year, or maybe even less often than that. So people often ask, you know, how, how can I learn more about this particular patient population? Or, you know, how can I get enough knowledge that if, if this type of patient was admitted to my facility or walk through my door, um, I could at least get them started or at least have some semblance of, you know, knowing how to answer some of their questions. You know, and for me, it was not always an area of interest for me, or it was not always something I felt comfortable with, even for the, I've worked for this one particular institution for 13 years, and it wasn't until probably about seven or eight years ago that I started taking an interest in, you know, working with this particular patient population, because it's, it's complicated, right? 
but there are a lot of, you know, really good resources out there in terms of, you know, in-person courses that you can attend. There's some great online information available for people. There's training courses, there's clinical specialists that are employed by, you know, the two big institutions that make the majority of laryngectomy supplies. They'll come out to your facility, they'll come to you, they'll work with you. You know, if you have a difficult patient that you aren't sure what to do with, you can call them, they'll come and work with you hands on to kind of get you up and running. So there's a lot of really great opportunities out there to kind of start working with that particular patient population. It, you know, it gets a little more challenging when you start talking about, you know, getting into things like completing, you know, voice prosthesis changes. It's, it's something you have to want to do, right? Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. it's not something that someone can just say, oh, we want you to start doing voice prosthesis changes tomorrow. I have colleagues who are very interested in that and others who say, you know what, I'd rather not, you know, deal with, with someone's airway like that. And that's cool, right? Um, but there's there's a lot of opportunities to, you know, learn about that. And w- one of the biggest things that I love about, you know, working with these patients, and particularly, you know, with managing the voice prostheses is that, you know, these patients in the process of, of going through this surgical change, you know, there's a lot of changes that happen with total laryngectomy, but certainly the loss of voice, you know, also ends up being kind of a loss of identity for a lot of patients as well. Even if a patient will say, oh, I didn't talk much before, it's not a big deal. You know, deep down, it, it really, it really is a big deal for them. You know? Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine how it wouldn't be. Exactly. Yeah. So, so to give a patient an opportunity to, you know, restore the voice in some way um, is incredibly meaningful. And, you know, for me, just like some of these head and neck patients in terms of their overall conditions being complicated, managing a voice prosthesis can be incredibly complicated as well. So there's a lot of troubleshooting, a lot of trial and error, a lot of you know, critical thinking to try to figure out what, what's the problem here. It's not always an easy, you know, smooth type of thing. So I love that because it's the critical thinking piece and it keeps me on my toes and I have to constantly think about options, think about what's out there. And I have to, you know, consult the experts sometimes. I don't have all the answers. So um, it's, it's one of those things that definitely makes you keep learning and keep thinking and, and doing the best you can to help these, these patients. Hello, Isabel. Hi, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yes. Oh, good, 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 good. So Isabel is, has been a member of our MedSLP collective for quite some time, has always just had wonderful words of wisdom for everybody. And then at our collective live event that we had a few months back, I, I forget what, what you even said, but it was something about like conflict in the workplace and you just had such a beautiful response about it. And I was like, wait, hold that <laughs> thought. Let's do a podcast. <laughs> so a month or two later, here we are. So tell the people who you are, Isabel. Okay. Thank you. So I am a med SLP. Obviously I work here in acute care presently. I work for actually the largest Catholic hospital association in the country. So I've been really fortunate to have a good network of speech paths to work with and collaborate with. I've been here for about two years. Prior to that, though, I worked in our local inpatient rehab hospital, and I was the primary um, pediatric speech pathologist, although my caseload was mixed. So I did see quite a bit of adults really across the lifespan. But if our pediatric census was high, then that was a lot of what I saw. And it was all mostly trauma. You know, I think like something like 70% of our caseload was brain injuries. And uh, before that, I did a brief stint in the schools and <laughs> discovered pretty quickly it wasn't for me. It's a very noble setting, but wasn't for me. And I had an opportunity to join the inpatient rehab hospital. So I did and honestly haven't looked back since. Medical speech language pathology is definitely my passion and I feel really lucky to have found it. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? Okay. So um, really, I think the comment that you're referring to from the collective was that I was talking about how I had sort of a controversial request with um, my colleagues and my manager about a patient need, and it was maybe an unpopular opinion, uh, but I felt like it was the best way to go for the patient. And so I really took my time to do some research and 
got some amazing feedback on the collective on how to kind of craft my message. And once I felt confident that I knew what I was talking about, I was able to go speak with my peers and speak with my manager. And we had a really fruitful conversation about how to best proceed for that patient. And so I talked a little bit about how you have to make sure that in your messaging, what people are hearing is your message and not your fear, right? Because it can be scary to have those tough conversations. And so I think that led to a request to talk a little bit more about how to have a difficult conversation with your peers, colleagues, doctors, physicians, really anybody in your bubble who can impact your ability to provide good patient care. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. All right. So where should we start? Okay. So I think I want to talk about why is it so dang hard to have a conversation, you know? And so I wanted to be prepared for today. So I did a little bit of digging online and found that there's really no statistic or percentage of the population that avoids conflict. And the reason why is because everybody does it. Literally every, it it would be like asking people, do you eat dessert? The answer would be yes for somebody in some form, right? And so um, really what it comes down to is that it's uncomfortable and unpleasant and people like to be comfortable and happy. So if we are faced with a situation where we have to make ourselves uncomfortable, typically most of us do everything in our power to avoid that. I did a little bit of digging and I found out that where this typically arises from is it's, it tends to be sort of a people-pleasing behavior. So if having a difficult conversation could even remotely result in an uncomfortable outcome or maybe even potentially harm a relationship or an interaction, our desire as human beings to be pleasing and to be helpful sort of overrides that. So it's like a lizard brain kind of reaction, if anything. And it's just this sort of deeply rooted fear that a lot of people have of uh, upsetting other people, you know, and it's really as, I think, as straightforward as that. Yeah. Yeah, That looks like a lot of different things. I think we can all relate to this. You know, we deny that an issue even exists. Oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. No problem. Right. Or we just completely avoid the situation. I've literally had instances where I've seen somebody walking down the hall that I need to talk to and I do quick about face and like go in the other direction. <laughs> um, or we, you know, change the subject and um, probably most harmful it would be to sort of have an environment or an air of um, resentment. Yeah. I feel like when you have something that's important to you and you don't talk about it, you can harbor that resentment and that can lead to a really toxic relationship. I think that's so important, especially with SLPs. I think, you know, for some reason we are whatever the forgotten therapy or, you know, in some hospitals we're the forgotten discipline. And, you know, I, you just hear so many SLPs talk about how burnout they they are. And, you know, but then I start talking to some of them and I'm like, well, but you, have you been advocating for what you want? Have you asked for what you want? Well, no, I'm not sure how, I'm not even sure how to talk to people. So this is such an important topic because I think it, it really can just open everything up for some people. Absolutely. And, and it's really, it's, I think it's funny is not the right word to say, but when people say, oh my gosh, I had the conversation and they said, sure. Yeah. Like, why was it that easy? And well, because sometimes it can be, you know, sometimes it's not that easy, but sometimes it is. And you don't know until you actually have the conversation. Right. And what you just said is right. 90% of the time, 90% of the time, everything's fine. When we have consistent sort of patterns of disagreement and conflict, the reason for that is because we never had the right type of conversation to overcome that conflict. And so you're stuck. It's not that it's not the outcome that you could get. It's that you haven't resolved the issue to get to that outcome, if that makes sense. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.